You are listening to The Political Periscope, a weekly podcast brought to you by Radio WNET. Interviews on international politics, security, geopolitics, economy and more, every Thursday at 7 p.m. Today's interview is part of Radio WNET's project on the Bucharest 9, the countries of NATO's eastern flank. Our guest is Jaroslav Kurfürst, representative of the Czech Minister of Foreign Affairs for the Eastern Partnership. Political Periscope. You've been to uh, embassy in Moscow when Vladimir Putin took the power. Who was he then and who is he now? Uh, was it possible to predict what was going to happen? Yes, uh, indeed. Uh, uh, I served... Uh, Uh, at the Czech embassy at the moment when Vladimir Putin came uh, to the office uh, in Kremlin and at that moment he was pretty unknown to diplomats. So the key question for a couple of years was who is Mr. Putin? Um, and uh, uh, there were hopes that uh, he wants to cons not only consolidate Russia but also get some uh, prosperity to Russia in cooperation with the West. He was speaking about Russia as a European country. So there were a couple of hopes, but at the same time he came on uh, to power on the wave of uh, Second Chechen War. So it was so also clear that uh, he is from the KGB and uh, his past was determining him. So that that was confusing people and uh, there were hopes mixed with fears at that from the very first day. But um, then there is the effect which is known from the history. Many Russian Tsars in the history came as uh, liberals to the office with big promises of reforms and uh, making Russia more European and they ended uh, the office as uh, basically autocrats. And uh, I think something similar happened to Vladimir Putin, that uh, uh, all this post-imperial or imperial syndrome was, was hunting him uh, throughout his tenure in the office. Uh, and uh, definitely uh, Vladimir Putin changed. Uh, he also changed Russia, but also maybe Russia and Russian imperial past changed his personality to the worst. So not only Russia and Putin changed, uh, that's also whole Eastern Europe that changed, uh, especially now. And now, uh, how to talk uh, with Belarusia or with Armenia after the Russian aggression on Ukraine? Yes, uh, Eastern partnership or Eastern Europe changed a lot. But we have to understand what the Eastern partnership means. This is not the organization. This is the policy of the European Union towards six countries uh, in the Eastern neighborhood. So it means that, uh, for example, Lukashenko, who is now, Belarus is now uh, the aggressor under international law, uh, lending the territory for the uh, aggression, he cannot just abandon uh, the Eastern partnership. He can say, uh, on the level of the government, we will not participate in the Eastern partnership. But uh, for the Eastern Partnership, you have civil society, independent media, you have uh, civil activists. And these people, sh we should not throw it uh, just uh, into the uh, Lukashenko's or, or uh, some isolation, so, uh, sort of um, empty place. So I believe uh, um, the Eastern Partnership still, have, still has uh, a value. 
but uh, at the moment when uh, three countries who, who applied, which applied for the EU membership, uh, Ukraine, Moldova and Georgia, will get the candidate status, uh, they will get on uh, the other track, not the neighborhood policy track, but the enlargement track. And now there is a lot of debate how it will look like in the future, but uh, uh, I believe that will change also the in uh, Eastern Partnership. So. Uh, you say uh, that, well, it will not only be a question of enlargement of European Union, changing this status of uh, uh, this uh, this model of cooperation from uh, Eastern Partnership to uh, uh, candidate status or future member of European Union of Moldova, Ukraine, and Georgia. Uh, but it will shift the balance of power in Europe. It will shift the uh, the balance of power in the world. Yes, and this is the uh, biggest b debate in the European Union because the people who are speaking about the enlargement uh, of the European Union uh, eastwards uh, towards Ukraine uh, understand that the center of gravity of the European Union will move eastwards. And, of course, with the membership of Ukraine, um, Uh, there will be all this geopolitical pressure and geopolitical complexity which will be drawn into the European Union. So that's why uh, the uh, debate about the candidate status uh, will be so difficult. Um, of course, there are economical challenges and the rule of law problems in Ukraine, but this is not uh, uh, the main obstacle, I think. Uh, All this uh, debate is about the functioning the EU, the future of the EU as a geopolitical entity itself. And this is uh, how it is difficult. Of course, morally, it is uh, so easy to say uh, Ukraine is fighting for European values. Ukraine is fighting for European security. It is fighting for us and we have to, to accept it. Uh, but still, uh, the ch position of the Czech government is very clearly. We are for uh, granting the candidate status because we believe that the policy of the uh, European Union when we were encouraging uh, countries uh, aspiring to the EU membership, um, we were encouraging to implement EU values. We were encouraging to implement uh, standards and norms of the European Union. But we were not opening the door to them. That means that we close them into a sort of a geopolitical impasse or a geopolitical prison. And we really have to give them this European perspective, understanding clearly that the road will be long, that the EU will have to change, that uh, these countries will have to change. And of course, uh, also we will have to Uh, make sure that the geopolitical situation will be much more favorable in the future. And that means that the EU will be stronger. So the Minister for European Affairs of France said that it it will take at least 15-20 years before the Ukraine can become a member of European Union. So is it a, maybe a projection of uh, this uh, unpreparedness of uh, the West, of the so-called uh, um, old union, Uh, for uh, acceptance of Ukrainian membership or are they pointing to some uh, real, actual obstacles? I think the second. I think that uh, it is a realization of the complexity of this accession process. Uh, I personally really believe that we have to grant uh, Ukraine the candidate status, the full candidate status, full perspective of the membership of the European Union very quickly. And 
also we have to quickly move with Ukraine to the accession process, open the chapters and debate. But here it's very clear that the accession process is being done properly that Ukraine fulfills all the criteria, all the standards, uh, its economy is prepared, its society is prepared, corruption is eradicated, and all this is being done. It will be a long process, and uh, personally I believe that uh, if we want to look at some number of years, we are looking for the double-digit number, uh, but uh, maybe I hope that it will start with one, uh, not more. Also, we have to understand that when Poland, Czechia or uh, Hungary and other countries uh, uh, in Central Europe were joining the European Union uh, in 2004, it was a different European Union. Now we have the Union which is even much more integrated. Uh, and all this new Aki uh, over the, these uh, 16 years from our accession Uh, should be again adopted by uh, Ukraine. Uh, and of course, there is whole reconstruction of Ukraine, which will go along, with, uh, along this process. So I believe that uh, uh, this process will not be short. There are reasons for it. But uh, Ukraine should have a very clear uh, support and perspective. So uh, you think that uh, France, uh, Germany, they are mentally ready for acceptance of Ukraine in European Union, for acceptance of this uh, European perspective of Ukraine? They are not going to, um, well, to exchange uh, Ukraine, give, give up on Ukraine um, in exchange of uh, business as usual with Russia as soon as, uh, I don't know, Vladimir Putin is changed by someone and uh, we, they, they will say that it's a new president, we can get back to business with Russia and they will just give up on Ukraine. I think in your question there are two different problems. One is whether, let's say, Germans and French or the countries in the Western Europe will exchange Ukraine for something with Russia. This is one problem. And here I'm very optimistic. I don't think it will happen. I think the lessons learned from the history, be it the doctrine of limited sovereignty by Brezhnev or being Munich in 1938 and Czechoslovakia, um, i think these lessons are so strong that even uh, throughout these crises uh, and the beginning of, uh, of the Russian aggression, uh, the countries in the West were not hesitating on which side they are. They were able to name the aggression aggression. So I'm not worried that they will be selling Ukraine with the new leadership uh, in Russia. The other question, or the other part of the question, is whether they are ready to uh, to accept Ukraine fully as a member, and whether they are just acknowledging all what does it mean, etc. Here, I can say only that I hope, but uh, uh, this uh, is much more complicated issue, and there will be a long uh, debate uh, about the future of the European Union and what does it mean for France and from. For, for France and for Germany, for, let's say, their leadership, for example, because you will have the country of 40, 40 million joining, uh, same similar size of Poland, and really it will change the EU and the EU functioning. It will move the EU to a difficult geopolitical situation, as I said, so this is a more complicated issue. So, geopolitical situation? 
uh, how how will look a new geopolitical situation after this war? Uh, not only European architecture of security, but also global architecture. Of course, it will depend uh, upon the result of the war, uh, and uh, we don't have uh, the end of the war close, so it's hard to to speak about the new situation after the war. This conflict really can be long, it can be protracted. Then what will happen with uh, Putin at the end of the war? He can be, um, let's say, dethroned by the uh, Russian society, which uh, is very volatile. If you look at uh, uh, Russian leaders, uh, one day they are heroes and on pedestal of the history, uh, and the other day they are just... Uh, uh, Outcasts like Stalin, for example, when uh, after 20, uh, 20, after 56 uh, and the 20s uh, uh, assembly of the Communist Party, there was a de-Stalinization, the statues were removed and the uh, streets and mountains and cities were renamed. So basically that can easily happen to Putin as well. But it can be also that uh, he is able to use the strong uh, security apparatus in the country and really maintain the power for another 10 years. He will turn 70 in October, so he can go on uh, uh, with the, if really the health is good uh, for another, let's say, 10 years. And uh, uh, we can see a sort of North Korean scenario only in a global scale or, or big scale. Um, so it's very hard to predict. But I would dare uh, to make one prediction. I believe uh, uh, it it is awakening of uh, the transatlantic community, awakening of Europe as a geopolitical force. And uh, Europe is, uh, is really getting out of this, let's say, vegetarian status uh, in the dangerous world. Uh, and uh, it's showing that it has the muscles. And China? I think China is uh, one of the countries which are so closely watching what's happening uh, there. And it is learning the lessons learned that uh, uh, the war can be uh, really difficult. You can stumble. Uh, uh, it is also learning how the West and the West democratic community, global democratic community, can stick together and that it can, uh, it can be strong that it is not an old, tired, rich uh, power structure which is uh, just from the past century, but it is still dy dynamic and, uh, and strong. So, um, yeah, I think China is watching and uh, let's hope that the lessons learned from China will be um, that it is not worth going to the conflict. Uh, the strategic choice of China is, is twofold. Either it opts for the market, and market lies in the West, in uh, Europe, European Union, and in the United States, or it is uh, choosing raw materials, and this is basically partnership with Russia. Um, ten years ago, uh, China's choice would be clearly for the market, because uh, the export of China was uh, so so big uh, to the Western world. Today, China is uh, having uh, the internal consumption much stronger uh, and uh, there is a risk that uh, 
as a revisionist power, it can uh, go to the alliance with Russia. There is some rhetoric in China we, uh, which is witnessing uh, to this inclination and will opt for raw materials which are so necessary for the Chinese, uh, uh, Chinese industry. So that's the option of China and up to the Chinese leadership to respond to, to that dilemma. So for the end, two que one question, in fact two. So what will be the result and most importantly, when will be the end? Well, I'm the optimist uh, by nature. I believe that uh, Ukrainian heroism um, and uh, strength uh, is uh, that strong. It surprised the world and it's that strong that it will be able to conquer Russian aggressors and uh, will just uh, draw occupants out of the country, at least from the majority part of the country. And uh, in the long run historical process, I believe uh, Ukraine will be free, uh, free as a whole. Uh, when it will, it will happen, uh, maybe there will be some phases. Uh, uh, there will be just a phase when uh, there will be a sort of stagnation in the conflict. Then uh, I believe that Ukraine can progress and can liberate uh, part of the country. Um, let's see what, what will happen east in Donbass and with Crimea. But uh, as I say, in the long run, uh, I'm optimistic for Ukraine. Thank you very much. So a postscriptum to our uh, interview. Uh, is the idea, uh, the thought that uh, Russia can, uh, can extend the conflict and attack other countries, is this uh, thought present in uh, Czech Ministry of Foreign Policy? I would say that uh, uh, in diplomacy you cannot underestimate any possibility and any chance. You have to think through all different options. At the same time, uh, I don't see really uh, Russia having the strength to start to fighting uh, the NATO country. Uh, at the moment when uh, it is uh, stalled in Ukraine and uh, not performing as good uh, as uh, Vladimir Putin hoped. So I don't think it would be a very reasonable option for Russians. A question about uh, world hunger. Is it possible that the world hunger will be uh, the crucial result of this war? Yes, it is a very serious problem. It should not be underestimated. And, uh, of course, we should do uh, everything possible to help Ukraine to get out the grain and uh, uh, its harvest uh, to the world markets. Um, at the same time, we should be very strict and very clear in uh, explaining the, let's say, third world, the countries in Africa, the countries in Asia and, and elsewhere, and even those, uh, let's say, poor or underdeveloped, uh, that this is a fault of Russia, that this is the result of Russian imperialism and uh, uh, plenty of grain was, uh, was stolen by Russians. Uh, so I think it is important to communicate uh, from our part. And I think in this part of the world, the neo-colonial narratives and or colonial memories are that strong that they will understand what Ukraine is going through because they were liberated let's say in 60s when the former colonial powers were withdrawing now Ukraine was had to wait un, uh, until this decolonization happened in 1991 after the dissolution of the Soviet Union so 
I think these narratives should be clearly explained in a distant parts of the world. So the colonization uh, between 89 and 91 is the west uh, is the west conscious that we were colonies of Russia or is it just here in in we the nations of um, central europe are we the only one who knows that who know that we were in, indeed colonized by Russia No this is the question I like very much because the answer is no They don't understand that uh, that was really a um, the last chapter of decolonization, this dissolution of the Soviet Union. And uh, they are, for example, the academic uh, colonial studies, which are so focused on decolonization of different parts of the world, they are so rarely uh, connected to the post-Soviet space and, of course, all this, uh, let's say, uh, camp of the peace, uh, I mean, the satellites uh, we were once, before before uh, 1989 uh, uh, it's very rare to to find this narrative and uh, still there are many nations uh, in Russia which have this feeling of uh, sort of being colonized but uh, now it's so hidden because there is a uh, uh, strong grasp of power uh, uh, central power but definitely the nations like Ukrainians they feel it very strongly Thank you very much. You're welcome. This was The Political Periscope. The podcast is released every Thursday at 7 p.m.